walking into San Rufino Cathedral in Assisi, I was surprised to find that, uh, that a large part of the center aisle had been cut away and replaced with glass or plexiglass. Typically, a cathedral wants to draw your eyes up to look up at the ceiling, up to the heavens, to leave you contemplating the grandeur of a god somewhere up there in the sky. But walking into this church, I found myself staring down at the ground or through the ground to what lay beneath, through what had been massive stones in the floor to, well, other massive stones under the floor, the foundation of the first two churches that were in that spot, one from the 11th century and one from the 8th. And for an extra three, three euros, they let me go downstairs into the crypt and museum and visit St. Rufino's bones, which had been in that spot even before there was a church. But even they weren't the oldest thing down there. In an out-of-the-way passage on the opposite end of the museum from all of the Christian art and priestly vestments was this Roman cistern. You could only go back there kind of one at a time, this narrow passage to this cobwebbed old stone cistern from when this courtyard had been the town forum a long time before Christ and a temple had stood on this spot dedicated to Cupra Mater, the good mother. Probably this had been a sacred place long before there was any structure built. Maybe it started as a particularly beautiful spot on the hillside or the location of a mountain spring. Who knows how long people had been going there to give thanks and to receive refreshment in that particular spot. As my friend Mary said that day, where people prayed once, it's good to pray again. That's the Israelites' theory as they prepare to lay the foundation of the second temple on top of the ruins of the first. They want to pray in the same place that their ancestors did, in the same place that some of them did before. They've, they've dreamed of returning to this place. They've longed for it for years. The old temple was torn down 50 years ago, and since that time, they've been living in exile in Babylon, hoping that someday they would make it back to sing their songs, to worship their God on this hill. And now they're back. They've been allowed or even commanded to rebuild the place. It's a celebration. They have trumpets and cymbals. They have their special clothes on. They're singing and shouting. This is the moment for something new, for something better. It's a chance to, to move on from all of the pain and heartbreak of everything that's come before. They're finally getting back to normal, to real life. And the old folks, the ones who knew this place before, who prayed here with their parents or grandparents, start to cry. To weep so loudly it competes with trumpets. 
so loudly that from a distance it's impossible to tell whether the crowd is happy or sad. It's both. The people are finally getting to do all that they've been dreaming of, finally repairing and healing and rebuilding what they've lost. And it turns out they only can do that on the ruins of what has been. This moment feels a little like that moment. At least that was our theory when we chose this foundational theme, when we decided to spend a month going through Ezra and Nehemiah. My study Bible calls them literature from the early post-exilic period. And that feels like an apt description for fall 2021. We're in like early post-exilic. This time when we say post-pandemic, but we don't really mean it. Where we're getting to do the things that we've been longing to do, seeing family and friends, taking trips, holding weddings, holding funerals. In so many ways, we're in the place that we've wished we could be. Children are getting vaccines. Adults are getting boosters. It's looking like Christmas could happen, if not Thanksgiving. And in this moment, when more is possible than has been possible for a long time, so much of what I see is people grieving and falling apart and collapsing in exhaustion. So much of what I'm doing in these days is grieving and falling apart and collapsing in exhaustion. I've cried more in the last two months than I have in any period since like those first couple of months of pandemic. Every day on my retreat, the tears were just right up at the surface. Because the early post-exilic period is the first time you have enough energy to really mourn what you've lost. The early post-pandemic period is when you finally are rested enough to admit how tired you are. The early post-exilic period is when you cut all the stones for the new foundation and you polish up your trumpet and you head to the Temple Mount and everyone is lifting their heads to praise the grandeur of God and you find yourself staring down into the ruins of what has been of all that you've lost, of all that has gone away. And staring down into those ruins, it can feel like, it's easy to feel like, it sometimes feels to me like, what's the point? People have built so much in the past, and what has it come to? All these beautiful churches and temples torn down to their, their foundations, all of our relationships, our careers, our communities suddenly shown to be so fragile, so temporary. Everything we build gets destroyed. And everyone we love is eventually lost or we're lost to them. What's the sense of starting over again? I feel it in myself. I feel it in everything I'm trying to do in this moment. I feel that skepticism, that exhaustion, that grief, that great resignation. It's an awkward time to try to hold a stewardship campaign, for instance, or to form a small group, or just to get like friends together for dinner. 
I'm tired. I just got back from a retreat, and I'm tired, so I know that you're tired. I've got my trumpet in hand, but my eyes are firmly down on the ground, down in the ruins. But spending the last couple of weeks staring into ruins has taught me something about moments like these, rebuilding moments. Those foundations, those cutaways are all over a CZ. Actually, at a pizza restaurant we went to, they had the floor cut away, and you could see the Roman foundations underneath. This was exactly the pizza restaurant the Romans dreamed of having built on top of there. And in the center of town, there's a church that used to be a temple to Minerva. You climb about 10 steps up from the plaza to get there, but actually there are many, many more stairs than that under the ground. Two stories worth of stairs extending under the stones to where the plaza used to begin. But over time, decade after decade, generation by generation, things built up. People built on the ruins of what had come before, and the town slowly grew higher and higher. What came before got torn down, but something remained. Something accumulated century by century. It added up, step by step, ruin by ruin, toward the temple. Every building eventually comes down. Every life comes to an end, but the well-built ones become a foundation for what's next. All Saints is sometimes called a thin place. That's this Celtic idea that on that day or on, on this day, whenever we observe it, that there can be spaces and times when the veil that separates heaven and earth, that separates those who have gone before and those of us who are still here, that veil becomes a little more transparent. We're able to look through it and to see our loved ones a little more clearly and to see the God who holds them in love now. On the first day of our retreat, Mary said she didn't really go in for that idea. But she did think Assisi was a special place, a, a place where history was present and, and tangible around you a place where people have been praying in the same place for a long time, where their faith and devotion have built up through the centuries. And after a few days there with her, I knew what she meant, and I proposed a new idea that Assisi is a thick place, a place where people have been trying to build something beautiful and peaceful and faithful for a long time. And while those people have died and many of those places are buried, something has accumulated there. Something that adds up, that stacks up, that lifts you up and makes something new possible. I think maybe All Saints is also a thick place. Not as much a time to stare up into the heavens to see our ancestors, but a time to look down to our foundations, to notice what has been laid for us, what we stand on, to see the lives of those who have been most important to us, the saints that we've known and the ones we've just admired at a distance all stacked up beneath us, 
making our own lives possible, lifting us up further than we could reach on our own. We're always building on ruins, but that building makes something else possible. Back upstairs at San Rufino on a pedestal above that see-through floor is the baptismal font where a boy named Giovanni Bernardone was baptized, the late 1100s, until his father came home from business and renamed him Francis. And if you look up from that cathedral courtyard, you can look to the home of the wealthy Afroduccio family, where a young woman named Chiara could look out and hear this wild man Francis preaching just outside her home, where she would hear him and would decide to leave everything, all of that wealth, her position, and live a life of solidarity with the poor and suffering. And when the two of them were recognized as saints, hundreds of millions of pilgrims would travel to Assisi, stacking prayer on prayer on prayer, making something new possible in that place. So one more layer, I promise, that's all. When Mussolini's regime fell in 1943, the Nazis invaded Italy from the north and set him up as governor there, and the Italians fled south in droves, among them, of course, many Jewish people fleeing for their lives. The population of Assisi doubled in that year as they made room for the refugees. The pastor at San Rufino Cathedral was this man, Don, Don Aldo Brunacci, the right hand of the bishop Giuseppe Nicolini. And together, the two men ran what has become known as the Assisi Network, an underground conspiracy of priests and nuns and monks working together to hide Jewish people all over central Italy. 26 convents and monasteries participated in the work, most prominently the Sisters of San Quirico, just down the street from the bishop's own house. The nuns used their cloistered life as an excuse to keep the Germans out. They were part of the order of St. Clair, that woman watching Francis from the courtyard. They would house refugees in their building until a local printer could forge new documents for those folks. And then they'd just go out and live out in the open under their assumed identities. And meanwhile, all of their belongings, anything that would reveal their true identities had to be hidden, including the art and sacred books from synagogues of northern Italy. And for that, Brunacci and Nicolini wouldn't trust anyone else. They took those sacred objects down to the basement of the bishop's own house, and they dismantled the stones of one of the walls, and they hid the objects behind it, and they rebuilt that wall over and over and over again. And in that way, the Assisi Network saved the lives of hundreds of Jewish people over the next two years. Of course, courageous and beautiful things like that could happen anywhere, but I think they're easier in a thick place. A 
place where people have been doing courageous and beautiful things long before, where love and peace and faithfulness have accumulated, have stacked up generation after generation, which gives me hope for our own early post-exilic moment that this could be a thick place, a moment when we stare down into the foundations, into all that has come before, into the ruins of what our lives were. It's a moment to grieve and to fall apart and to collapse in exhaustion, but maybe also a moment to see the foundations that we stand on, to notice that even though things have been destroyed, even though people we love have died, they're not gone. Something of what they've built remains and lifts us up and makes things possible that otherwise would be impossible. What we build will not last forever. We too will die. But maybe it is worth it to do the same thing for those who will come after us to do something courageous and beautiful, to lay down the first stone of something new.